Welcome to the If These Walls Could Talk podcast. I am your host, Rachel Usher. I'm an accomplished interior designer and solopreneur, having built my own design practice from nothing into an award-winning and published studio. During my own design journey, I have found the business side of interiors to be secretive and largely conducted from behind the curtain, leaving business owners like myself grappling with the unique complexities of running a design business and often having to learn many things through trial and error. Well, here's the thing. It doesn't have to be that way. This show is designed for design professionals and together with our guests, we demystify the business of interiors. This is the place where we hear from the personal experiences of some of the most talented people that work within the design industry. From entrepreneurs to business experts, together we unravel some of those truth tales about what it really means to not only survive, but to thrive in the creative world of business. I'm going to be talking to Hannah Sidley. Hannah is the creative director of Cream and Black, which is a luxury high-end residential interior design practice based in the West Midlands and working across the UK. Hannah has a similar sized team to my own and has followed a similar entrepreneur journey to the one that I have followed. So I've often looked at Hannah's studio's work and found it really quite relatable. And I'm really looking forward to speaking to somebody who has experienced the industry as a Northern designer, like my studio is a Northern studio, and has experienced what it's like to be a woman, starting a business and standing your own in sometimes challenging situations. Hi, Hannah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm very grateful that you're here to share your story with me. Please, can you introduce yourself and tell our listeners a bit bit more about who you are? Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Rachel. Firstly, for inviting me on the podcast. It's the first time that I've ever been on a podcast, so I apologise now (laughs) well in advance. My name's Hannah. I am the founder of Cream and Black Interior Design. We're an interior design practice based in the Midlands, but we work all over the UK, similarly to yourselves. Um, We set up the studio 10 years ago. Um, Our prime focus is uh, residential interiors, However, over the years, we have worked on various projects, so a little bit of um, commercial, retail, and because we are a small studio, it's good to keep things fresh. We can, you know, kind of uh, pick and choose what comes in through the door to keep it fresh. Yeah. So how big's your team? At the moment, we're a team of five. Over Mm -hmm. the years, it has fluctuated, sometimes more, sometimes less. Um, but at the moment, there's five of us and then we've got account support as well. So how, how did you get into interior design? Because if you started the studio 10 years ago, what, what was that journey that brought you to this place? Yeah, so, I mean, taking it back to, you know, my beginnings through career and before that education, I moved to London when I was 19 and went to St Martin's and studied textile design. So that's kind of where that was my foot in the door into the design world, um, as it were. So I went to St. Martin's and um, previous to that, I was at an art college. Um, So I went into textiles, not knowing what I wanted to do, what business I'd like to be in. I just purely went with a feeling and I always, I never had a career plan and I just purely went with what I enjoyed Um, which has its pros and cons, because if you're not sure what your career path, it's not like going into accountancy, 
and you know you're going to be an accountant if you're in the creative arts it's so it you might do textile design you might end up being a fashion designer or an interior designer print designer there's lots of different um uh you know differentiations within that industry so graduated with a textile design degree and then started by looking for placements in the interiors world so managed to secure myself um, a couple of internships I was at designers guild for a while um, and then eventually I found a placement in a design practice in Chelsea within interiors um, and that's kind of how I got my foot in the door into the interiors mm. world and and started learning from the ground up and you obviously took the decision um to take your career as a an entrepreneur forward what was the thinking behind that why did you set up on your own that's a really good question I think I think it it came from a place of when I left uni I knew that I didn't want to just be um a print designer and to be just creating prints um uh, whether it be for interiors or fashion I knew that I wanted more of an organizational role and and that's kind of what led me to interiors because you have all the technical elements and you have the creative elements and it's kind of trying to create a fusion and bring those pieces together so and that kind of followed me throughout my career so when I entered into the interiors world I very soon because I was with a small studio got um, the ability to work on my own projects really early on in my career and my boss trusted me to start working on real live projects where I managed it from um, concept to completion so whether it be um the floor of a property it might be certain single rooms in the house I took on the project and I followed it all the way through so very early on I got to see I was very I was client facing and I got to see exactly what happened in every part of the process and I think that really helped me um get a build a foundation as to what it would be like to run my own business however I was definitely lacking in the business knowledge and side of things coming from a creative um, university and I'm sure a lot of other designers understand that I would say so so but you identified within yourself something that felt that you wanted to be um, in charge of your own destiny and have your own company what do you think that was I think I think it's partly my personality um, that I, I do like to take on a challenge I think the thought of, I, from a very young age, I always made my own decisions and my parents let me run with that. So the thought of working for an organisation where I was, a, a, you know, you know, just a cog in, a, in you know, that, that big process that it really wasn't appealing to me. And I like to have freedom, actually, in life. And I think looking back, like now I can look back and recognise it as that, at the time, you don't so much. You you know, you're just on your path, and you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants, aren't you? Mm, early on, yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. So those early stages of running your own company without that business experience, which is quite often the case, mm-hmm. 
what kind of experience was that for you? How did you navigate that early time? Um, I mean, purely through trial and error. Um, there was a lot of errors, of course, like there always is. But I think um, learning on the job is the best experience and not being afraid to ask for help. So even if, you know, I might have done floor plans for a commercial office fit out, um, but it's bringing in the right people and building your power team early on that really helped me through the process. So whether it's liaising with building control, finding out about, I'm doing my own research with fire regs and all of that jazz. This is really early on bread and butter stuff. Um, so and not being afraid to ask for advice when you're on site, speaking to the contractors, speaking to the planning department and, you know, through every process, whether it be accounts, on-site experience, it's really communication and talking to people. Um, there have been a lot of challenges along the way, and I think if you're a creative thinker, even more so because you, the ideal is that you're thinking about your creative concepts, but the reality is very different, and I think that's what's lacking in... Um, creative courses actually um, because you get into industry and actually it's all it's great just to come up with amazing concepts but if they can't be implemented or you know your head is completely in the clouds because you don't know what an invoice is or a pro forma or how to pay, yes. go about paying these things and that so yeah I had to kind of educate myself on all of that. I think that comes up a lot and we we observe it from an outside point of view as well, well, we'll be interviewing um, young graduates for maybe a junior role mm -hmm. and they are really proud of their portfolio and it's great work, but there's always an Armageddon scenario within it. You know, they've always had to design a bunker for the end of the world. And I think, <laughs> what on earth, why are, we, yeah. why are we doing this when actually, like you say, that real world lived practical experience that will set them up to be competent, capable designers that have got some kind of commercial awareness because commercial awareness doesn't seem to be a strong feature. Um, I, I really feel like there could be a little bit of a, a redirection there um, because in any practice, whether you work for yourself or you work for somebody else, understanding yeah. the impact of your decision on that company's bottom line. I mean, of, of course, and... I mean, we have had designers work for us in the past and however creative they are, they're working on live projects, they have your reputation at stake yes. and they also have live budgets to work with. Now, yes. over the years, we have had thousands and thousands of pounds lost through lack of understanding of yes. how the business makes money and, and that goes across mm -hmm. the board of how any business makes money but in particular yes. how designers so we we're definitely a lot better now in our studio at educating our employees about this is how we make money if if you take this route on a project or if you run away with the hours yeah. I mean you you just wouldn't believe the instances we've had that you think someone has absorbed the brief. You know, we don't like to micromanage. However, sometimes you have to. Um, but when you 
question a designer of, well, how have you gone 25% or 35% over the hours that have been allotted to you? When you're hitting the end of those hours, why haven't you spoken to your manager or explained? And they're completely unaware, about, uh, unaware of the financial impact yes. that they might whittle away any profits in a project. And this is earlier on in our journey and go minus through their decision making. It's really challenging. And I think sometimes as well, the creative brain doesn't help because sometimes designers get into something and they're looking for a light fitting and it's just and when do you stop yeah when do you stop when is it good enough and it's like well we can look for three weeks for a light fitting but how does that become viable that we do that yes. there has to be a point in time where we go that's this enough is good it's enough now yeah it's good enough just keep redesigning and redesigning and I find it myself where I dip in and out of projects and then I go in and I go, whoa, 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 whoa. Why did we move away from what was there last time I checked? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's because they just keep going and going. And meanwhile, yeah. you know, it's eaten into your revenue. And, and that's exactly where it comes in, that there is a responsibility, I feel, that universities, and they, they may be better at doing it now. You know, I graduated in 2003 I think it was so surely they've got better at business by now however assuming they haven't I think it you've got a duty of care to the students that are going into industry that it's good yeah we're we're shocked when we um, are expected to or you know to take on designers because not only do we need to teach them the trade and what's realistic we also need to pick up the other elements and as you're aware, you know, not being a large corporation where we um, can invest heavily in that process, yeah. it can be challenging. Definitely. I mean, we don't have training departments, do we? It's no. on us. Yeah, It's of our course. time. It, it's time, value. yeah. So over the course of your um, 10 and a bit years of running Cream and Black, how have you refined your processes and practices? What what have you learned works well and you parked because it didn't work so well um so generally speaking what works well is following the process no matter which project it is that we're working upon so that everybody in the studio knows and works to the same process so that's really important to us so that every project is approached in the same way however small or large it is that we make sure that we're following the same same process. So that enables us to cross-check work, um, have that accountability for not only the designers, but for myself, Laura, my business partner. Um, and we that gives us our deliverables for the client. So devising really strict processes um, has really, really helped with us. Um, with regards to elements that we might have parked there's nothing springing to mind of things that we definitely don't do now but it's all been a process of developing what we have devised so it might be that we have tried presentation tactics in the past where we feel clients can't be as open as they need to be with us and there was something in particular over the last few years that I've encouraged the team 
and Laura and myself to work upon is um, relationships and trust and really not being too formal with certain processes because I think in the past trying to we know exactly where where we start a project and where we need to get to and we need to guide our clients through that process and I think in our industry because we are creative if you're too formal in some ways that can be detrimental to the relationships that are built with a client so I do think that trust personality feeling and excitement and dynamism when you're presenting is so very important it to is, a project. And, and some clients are really excited because, you know, they've never done this before and it's a really big thing. And then other clients are stuck in decision fatigue and heavy construction projects where you can see that they're just not focused and they just don't know where it's going. And, and they can be harder to get along, can't they? Because keeping them in line with the vision. How do you manage clients' expectations about the journey that they're going to go through? Uh, firstly, by um, communicating with them really early on what our process is and really how important it is that they give us honest feedback. So if they're in a presentation mm. and we'll, I don't know, at the end of our phase one client presentation, if they don't love something or if they don't like something, that's okay because we're not magicians. This might be the first time yeah. we're working together yeah. And if, you know, I'll see a piece of furniture that one of the girls has put in a design scheme and there was a side table the other day and this comes from my print design background and I was like, that side table just looks like it's going to get up and walk away and it's too scary for me, so can you change it out? It kind of looked at like the, <laughs> the hand doll thing out of Toy Story. So I'm like, uh-uh, that, that needs to go. I'm just really not loving that. Change it out. And it didn't work with certain tables anyway. So I think it's about us being honest, the client being honest, so that we can get the best out of the um, the project. So early on saying, this is where we're going to take you, and this is what we need you to do, and this is what we'll do for you. So, yeah, trying to build a foundation of a strong team. Yeah, yeah. And how do you nurture your team? How do you bring them into the cream and black vision? Um, I guess through communication um, and I think as a small business it's really important to make sure that everyone feels valued and I hope I do that. I do take out the bins, I do get the milk in, <laughs> I will do all of those jobs as well as everything else um, and also to try and give the team a voice. So within our team meetings we're we do have stringent processes, and that's mainly because of Laura, um, my business partner, who keeps us in check, and um, <laughs> you don't want to cross her if you've not <laughs> dotted I or crossed a T. Um, so, so, yeah, we have our processes, but we really encourage the team to let us know if something isn't working or if they don't understand something. Mm. And sometimes, yeah. because I'm not on the tools, as it were, every day, at all I wish I was that there's certain processes and things that I might miss so let me know and so it I try to be as open so that's I guess that's if that's answered the question yeah yeah completely completely um because it is about setting your culture um and you know a small team you know it's really 
it can be hard because one person can yeah. really upset that balance of, of yeah. culture and, and dynamics. Um, and I also think it's hard to strike the balance between being a leader of a small team whilst not being cratic, whilst yeah. not being so soft around the edges that there is no structure. And it's just like walking a tightrope at times. Yeah, I've really felt that over the years. Um, I think I'm the kind of person that, because I am motivated, I'm really hardworking. Unfortunately, I'm a perfectionist, but I'm getting loads better at that because I have two young children. So, although I do get really stressed <laughs> still, um, I realise I can't do everything, but I do try. Um, so, within that, you kind of assume that everybody is the same as you. And in some ways, that's my yeah. um, a massive positive because I let people fly. If they can fly, they will because you have complete control of your destiny and I'm, I'm not going to clip your wings and hold you down from doing something that you'd like to do. However, in the past, I think um, I have given people too much free reign um, and I think I have been too nice. And that, and it comes through experience that it is that fine line of, and also getting to know people about how much management they need. I mean, there was somebody we had in our team a few years ago, and it ended up that I was micromanaging this person, which for a long time, and really, and looking back in hindsight, that will never happen again. It was, they were unmanageable. They weren't a team player. And if you have one bad egg in a group, even at however small your team up is, um, it can be really challenging because, you know, I really encourage positivity and I really like having fun at work. It is, it is really important. And I can completely relate to everything that you're saying in that if one person is a bit, uh, a bit negative, you can almost read other people starting to take on this yes. negative and and then it kind of it makes me feel uneasy as well and I, <sighs> because I'm naturally a positive yeah. person it's really difficult to be around yeah it is and it's really hard to manage um because these are really tiny things aren't they in isolation but actually it's a bigger issue so it is um, it is challenging, but also our team are amazing at the same time. You know, there are things that my team have done over the years 100%. and I know that we wouldn't have got there without them. Um, is It is just trying to find that perfect balance of, of positivity. Yeah. People that want to come to work, enjoy being at work, yes. appreciate that actually what we do is really privileged. Um, you know, people out there would give their right arm to... Right arm? Right arm. <laughs> Um, to be able to do such positive work. Um, 100%. And I, yeah, I agree with that. And I think recruitment can be a really, really tricky um, part of our um, job as well. You know, it's very easy to judge how someone's going to be if it's as black and white as being an accountant. Yeah, and is. can you run the figures? I mean, in my experience, a lot of them can't. But um, <laughs> um, so... It's, yeah. Um, it's a curve. <laughs> so I think going through the recruitment process and trying to find the right person for the role is very challenging. And sometimes if you're recruiting outside of London, it can be even more challenging. And that's what we've 
um, been up against over the last few years. But I do think I have interviewed people Mm. in the past that their skill set and their CV isn't completely right for the role. And I've met them and they are so positive and they have common sense. And I think you can learn the skills that I'm just completely down with giving people a try because I think if you've got the right work ethic, if you work hard, you can learn anything. And I I do think certain graduates have forgotten that, that you might have a degree or an MA. It doesn't mean you're going to do well in industry. So you do need to work hard. And I have had some great experiences, actually, bringing people into my company that are and haven't been classically trained. And I've brought them in as studio assistants and they spend a year really cutting their teeth in the sample library, dealing with spires. And you know what? We then put them through a CAD course because if they've demonstrated that they're creative, that's the bit I probably couldn't teach because you either think creatively or or don't. But the rest of it, we can we can build on. Um, so I I don't see it necessarily as a, a must-have. I'm like you. I will, I will, if somebody writes a covering letter and it's very personal and they've gone to some trouble to try and demonstrate how they're creative and they perform well in an interview, then there's a lot of positives to that. Um, they might not have the right degree, yeah. but if they can articulate and I think they could sit in front of my clients, yeah. I'm probably willing to give them a go. Um, and it's hard to break into this industry because it's quite... It yeah. is. It's very aloof. Quite aloof. <laughs> to say the least. Say. And also, you know, it's hard. There is, which kind of links to a lot of elements of our industry, in layman's terms, an interior designer. Oh, that's, you know, when you say, I almost don't like telling people what I do because it waters down what I do in layman's terms to... Yes. You know, a person on the street. Oh, what do you do? I'm an interior designer. Oh, well, that must be lovely. Da, 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 da. That must be nice. I'm like... That must be nice. Yes. Ooh, all However, the reality <laughs> is you have to be a jack of all trades. You're pulling together, yeah. um, like I've just mentioned, trades. You are doing all the technical drawings. You need yeah. to know about electrics, materiality, yes. plumbing. You need to know about system heights, system frames, flush yeah. plates. You need to know about water flow rates. Mm. You know, there, there's all the technicalities in the background yeah. that really there's a massive lack of education in the UK about what we do so it yeah I think you're right yeah interior design in the UK is still quite niche isn't it it's not something that everybody accesses it's not accessible easily to you know your average Joe it's very much um still the preserve of the very wealthy and you know I wrestle with that a bit because it is by its very nature a luxury service it's very very labor intensive so it can never be um very very budget offering Uh, but I do think that it is still very privileged thing to be able to have um which does mean that there's a very significant lack of awareness about yeah for sure and that kind of it does make our job challenging so our when we get a new inquiry or when we have the first client meeting always our our first job is to educate people on what we do um because there is a massive lack of understanding, as we've just mentioned, about what an interior architect actually does and where is the value um, of bringing us into a project 
And, you know, that's always the question, isn't it? It's we have to justify our fees yeah. and why we need to be paid. And it's an age-old thing that we um, yes. have, you know, come up against. Um, so our, our first job is education that, of course, if the right interior mm. architect, interior designer is appointed on your project, then they will save you not only time, money, stress, the end result will be a hell of a lot better. You know, you walk into a five-star hotel, yeah. that doesn't just happen. The way you feel, the way, you know, yes. things look, the quality of the projects, uh, products that are within the design scheme, the artwork, it doesn't just happen overnight. You know, it's a, I've been a process over three or four years to get to that installation. Um, you know, you're cur- curating an art piece, but you're also making sure that it works. So, and I think um, that's why it's so important to work with the right professionals on a project. And you, otherwise you can um, definitely be stung by that. I know from um, our design discovery call that we, we've had that we, we've both kind of shared the fact that there's some pain points there. Um, can you talk me through some of the challenges that you faced in relation to projects where you haven't necessarily had the right team around you, how that's played out? Yeah. Um, so I think one of the most challenging aspects in the last, and actually it's presented itself to us only as recently as um, like two years ago in 2022, we were appointed on um, quite a nice project, um, high net worth individual really lovely clients um they were kind of mid 30s mid to late 30s so quite young um beautiful property and they brought us in to do the interior elements wasn't a huge project they weren't renovating the whole of the property in one go but they had a contractor that they'd already given the go ahead who'd started doing bits and bobs around the house they'd already done one bathroom um etc so we're brought in to the project and um after the first meeting site meeting we'd gone just to have an intro meeting with the contractor and um I was flabbergasted when I left the property about the the type of guy that they were even engaging with um it turns out that this contractor they'd met you know the golf club and um, I would assume that this contractor has spun the client a yarn about their experience he was I you know I literally left the meeting and I got back to the studio and I was like this is you know I had red flags and I I just said this guy he he hasn't got a clue what he's doing etc um, unfortunately, we weren't in a position, and we really, really loved the clients as well, to walk away. Um, I think if it was a larger project that had a longer time scale, I think potentially we may have, although it was larger, we knew it, it wasn't going to go on for, you know, more than nine months or whatever, or 12 months. It was like a really quick turnaround. Um, but that, yeah, that was red flags. And, you know, there were comments even in the first couple of meetings of I've been in industry, you know, for 30 years. And it, 
So it, it just created massive um, issues that the contractors couldn't really or didn't read our drawings. Um, they were inexperienced. Um, mm-hmm. They were unprofessional. But we yeah. kind of feel bound by our duty of what we do and the type of projects we work on. We don't just go running to the client to cause. Oh, I see that if, if I can solve an issue early on, I will. Um, and just to get the job done. But it was really really challenging yeah and I can think of many examples where we've had the same where we've been and we've worked with some great contractors and I will be really honest there are contractors that we just love working with because on repeat because they're just super they know what we do they know the standards we expect and time and again we like to work with them but I can think of scenarios always where the client has got the contract first or they know them somehow always and scenarios where a contractor we've been having a meeting here in our studio and the, the architect has been there and the client has been there and we've been there and we've wanted the contractor to the same meeting the contractor turns up 40 minutes late walks in starts chatting to the client as though he's in a pub that is exact yes that's what we had and I'm sat there going this is my meeting room we're in the middle of a meeting can we you know get to the agenda <laughs> and complete disrespect for the t- your time and what you're doing what you're bringing you know, this guy was just arriving late, walking into the client's house with their boots on, their shoes, before the project started. Now, I do command the right level of respect, whoever it is. I am the first one. I've got a potty mouth. I swear a lot. I love having banter on site. However, have some respect. And I mean, these guys, it was just shocking. And I can't, I, I literally can't believe they were like that around the clients. Um, and so much so that they, we worked out quite early on that they weren't used to working on the projects that we designed for um, and working to really detailed floor plans, elevations, um, exact specification that they need to implement. Um, so at that point I kind of took it upon myself and I'd been requesting a schedule of works from the contractor for about four, five weeks or longer. So nothing was presenting itself. And so I just took it upon myself. I called, prepared the schedule of works for them to work to, because I knew exactly what it should be. And that was out of my remit. However, to best support the client and for us to get the job done, surely if they've got a schedule of works, it should be followed and adhered to because the client signed it off. And it was, um, I mean, I was really fair on the timescales as well, um, really fair and taking into account their skill set. Um, and he, he, even that was, it, it wasn't followed. It was just very surprising. Um, how they behaved and also the comments because we're not on site all the time um I do find that designers can be made out to be the scapegoat on site um so yeah that's really really challenging Mm. dealing with contractors that you haven't worked with before who aren't Mm. professional enough yeah yeah we've had scenarios where contractors have um had the ear of the client and yes almost dissuaded them from some of our kind of you know we may may have designed and drawn something and we're kind of full-on into getting some quotes and looking at having all of this work done and then you might have the 
the contractor is going, ah, oh, yeah, don't need them. I can do that. <laughs> and honestly, so, they drive a bus through your project and the bus through the quality of your design. It is. It's and I think, and now I do have banter on site with the lads. So there was um, a project recently that, um, when did we complete? We completed in November. And, and it was a contractor that we haven't used before. They were really, really great, actually, and we will use them again. Um, but as soon as I got onto site with the electricians, I was like, I, I just took the piss that they put something in the wrong place and um, messing around. And I was like, right, on this job, please don't have an opinion. Don't say this is what we usually do to the client and say, oh, no, well, we usually put down lights at this distance from the wall because all you need to do, and it'll make your life easier, and I was kind of, you know, bringing them on board, having a bit of banter, just follow the drawings and that's okay. And if there are any issues, talk to us. That's what we're being paid for. We'll work with you and we'll have fun along the way. But, you know, there's a reason why we've put lights in a certain place and the light, you know, because we had a job um, last year, we get working with um, some electricians we haven't worked with before. And they were talking to the client saying, oh, no, well, we always put spotlights this far away from the front face of these full height kitchen units. Da, 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 da. Um, and, and then you've got the clients like, well, the, you know, we know what we're doing. Well, we try to know what we're doing most of the time. <laughs> Some things are trial and error. But there's a reason why we've put lights there and you don't know what we're installing. So we do want a light wash down the front face of this cabinet. So it is work, it's working with a team and you have to be the conductor of that team, I think, to get the best results and, and act on behalf of the client, actually, and have fun along the way um, and bring people in so that they want to work for you. Yeah, and you are your client's best advocate. And and we pride ourselves similarly on, you know, they want a positive experience and they want to know that you've got their back and they're, they're paying you to advise them. So sometimes those difficult conversations can be had. Um, I know that you've um, told me about following another designer onto a project. Um, that's right. something that I think comes up a lot. You know, it's always, when yes. I say a lot, I think probably most studios have had a situation whereby they're introduced to somebody and they say, well, I did have a designer, but that didn't work out. And I think that I can certainly think of somebody that engaged with us in the last few months and terrified is actually. Um, so the fact that they'd had a, a really significant breakdown with a previous designer and that was a bit of a... And I don't like to use kind of the, um, the kind of red flag yeah. because without our clients, we are nothing. We have no business and our clients are amazing and they trust us and we work with them on repeat. But there are occasional clients that get through the net. Talk me through that scenario where you've had this situation where you followed another designer in. Yeah, this was, I think it was in 2022. And we um, took on a project, full house renovation, met with the potential clients. They seemed absolutely lovely. Like the, and the wife, she, she was really, really nice. Um, had a couple of meetings, introductory ones. We were appointed on the project. And we we worked through concept design, um, like the brief phase that we work on, so space planning, looking at flow throughout the project, um, to yeah, kind of identifying any key design features that we'd like to feature within the design scheme. Um, and... 
we presented to the clients. They were really happy, left the studio. <laughs> Again, we always really encourage, if you don't like something or if you're like, you know what, guys, you know, you, you're paying us to, in essence, deliver your dream home and we're working together. And like I mentioned earlier, we're mm. not magicians. We're very good at what we do. However, you know, you know, it, it's like if I took you shopping and put you in an outfit, I might absolutely love it. And you might think, God, Hannah, <laughs> what have you done? <laughs> so, and it's the same, there's no different, is it, with your property? But I think sometimes it's, you're up against, they, they assume that they're going to love absolutely everything. And great, and that does happen. But, you know, sometimes it does, sometimes you might want to see another option for a you know, a credenza or artwork or whatever. Anyway, so they left what we're happy. And um, and then long short of it is we, we only got to, I think it was halfway through phase one and the, the husband started getting a bit, I don't know, I think one day I received a phone call of um, a disappointing phone call and I thought, well, that's strange. Um, I... To like one of my designers, my business partner presented to them. I we've got an open plan studio, so I heard everything that went on in the presentation. Um, it went really well, and I thought, well, gosh, why why isn't he pleased? Um, so I went back over all, all the design concepts. Have we done anything different? Have we forgotten anything? And we hadn't. So so then it comes down to personal choice and preference, and. To be honest, I think we're doing quite well, but this particular client quite quickly, it, it was strange. He started being quite threatening and, and saying, well, you haven't delivered on what was in the design proposal. So again, you know, double checking. Yeah, well, we've done this. We've done this. All the timesheets are correct. And I offered to share our, you know, the detail within our timesheet because we I get all the designers to complete their timesheets every single day by, you know, near enough to the minute. Um, and it, it was really challenging because he was a lawyer and very early on became quite threatening. And I think it was that kind of, I don't know whether it was his male ego or not know what, what an interior designer delivers, but we didn't even have the, he didn't give us the opportunity to, continue to push through it and then it became apparent within one of the conversations and they hadn't told us before that they'd previously appointed a designer and fired said designer prior to appointing us so we we thought well that's a bit strange that they'd not mentioned this before um and it kind of all unfurled and I spoke to that designer who had quite a, a bad experience with this client because he was threatening legal action, etc. Et and then um, we managed to get out of the project. We actually ended up losing money for no reason. And I think it's if you're a small business, the time that it takes to go through, whether it's a small claims court, um, to represent yourself and when you're up against someone, you know, who's a bit of a bully, to be honest, like that. Actually, I think it's probably the classic that you just end up washing your hands of it. And I just thought, 
will lose however many thousands and, and just crack on with, I just couldn't face, you know, six months in court or whatever the lead up. So, but what we did do, we spoke to, we were aware that a Cheshire-based designer had been appointed on the project. Um, and luckily we know each other. And the other designer called us and said, oh, we've just been approached by this client. And he said, but and we've been appointed but it came out in conversation that Cream of Black were the previous designers. And it was great that she called me because we could have that open conversation. And I said, look, this is, this is what happened to us. I'm aware to someone else. And just through being, you know, a bit community driven and, and community. Yes. Because if you don't have that, you can't pick up the phone, you know. And I think that is important. Exactly. So we champion each other, this other designer, and, uh, you know, we're always, whenever we're at event, events together, me and the other designers, we're ha- yeah, we have a laugh and we'll have, like, a glass of wine together and, like, what's going on in your world? And I think that helps because otherwise they wouldn't have known our predicament and they would have, uh, they were able to get out, they ended up, rightly so, but luckily earlier on getting out of that project so that they, because they had already uh, started to, encounter difficulties and these situations are rare but they do occasionally happen and it's just having that kinship isn't it that network that ability to be friends with each other and not feel like it's a threat but actually you've got each other's back a little bit um we've worked with a client who actually um we're really proud of the work that we've done and and they are actually very nice people the challenge we faced was that we only ever met with the wife and the husband only ever paid the bill, and they didn't obviously tell each other what they'd agreed. So we were caught in this gap in the middle where it was a bit challenging because we'd followed the wife's instructions and the husband was at the invoice going, no, no, no. (laughs) So that was difficult, very difficult. We're not marriage (laughs) counsellors. Yeah, we've had experience. But um, actually, uh, we had some clients in on Monday and um, it was ever so funny because I, I got home Monday night. Um, I think I was cooking or something, checked my emails. And this particular, during the, uh, they're, they're both solicitors. And during the meeting, I said, well, we do offer mediation. <laughs> and I said, we're actually quite good at that now. And then she proceeded to send me an article out of the uh, Times, I think, from last Sunday about, you know, how good designers interior architects how they do really help that mediation um problem throughout um yeah going through a project and making all those difficult decisions because we've we've had that instance probably on three or four occasions where we have completely been in the middle and you can see it in a dynamic in the room can't you you can read it and sometimes it's really awkward (laughs) and you're trying to please everybody Yeah. yeah Yeah, exactly. Not please everybody. Do you want to blue or black? (laughs) (laughs) What are you doing? (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a really good experience. If you were to advise a young designer about um, how to handle yourself with a challenging client or a challenging contract, so what's kind of your tips on that? Um, I would say so. Dealing with challenging clients, I think that you always need to keep that level of professionalism. Um, and you need to do your best to bring them on, to make them feel comfortable, to make them aware that you're working with them and for them. 
and that ultimately it's their decision. So we are working with them and we've got their best interests at heart. So whether that's building relationship, popping out for lunch, and it's sometimes being sat around a meeting table isn't the best place for certain clients. That, you know, build that relationship, take them out for a coffee, go to site and, you know, really find out what's important to them and your designs. Really try and relate those designs, if it's a residential client, to their life and to their family um, and make them feel special and important. With contractors, you can definitely be more to the bone with a contractor. So um, God loves a contractor. (laughs) You can, you know, get the best out of them. Have banter, you know, be on their level. Don't waltz onto a building site and say, you've done this wrong, you've done that. You know, you show them your humility and go through the drawings because they might not know exactly what you're expecting. So make sure that you take time out at the beginning of a project to get all the ladies, lads, contractors, suppliers, everyone around the table so that everybody is reading off the same hymn sheet. Let people know what's expected, but also give them a voice as well to say, well, we usually do things this way. Is that okay? And kind of work together as a team. So I think that's really important. And have fun along the way because it is fun and it can be fun and you don't have to work against people. I think the most important thing is you know, just bring people in um, and make them feel important and valued. And we're all working for a common goal exactly. at the end of the day. Don't we all want to be really proud of this work and then move on to the next? That's just basics, isn't it? Yeah. So the other thing that's enduringly challenging within our industry is the subject of fees mm-hmm. and money. And and it's not very British, is it? No. You know, we, we find it possible to get a client to be completely open about a budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to me about how you handle that and some of the challenges you've faced around that. Um, so, again, it's by now with experience talking about budgets really early on in the process. So if you are working on your design proposals and trying to win a project, at that point, the best thing is to talk re- realistically about money. Um, because ultimately it's an investment to hire an interior architecture company. Um, We all know in our industry the benefits of hiring someone and hiring someone good. Um, We are invaluable to a project and you can't deliver the right, you know, certain levels of projects without us on board. Uh, We're aware of that, but some people aren't and clients. So, it's really important to have those honest, open conversations too. And the way, we, what really helps us as well, if, if clients say, oh, we don't have a budget or um, like there's always a budget. And, and there's things that are important to couples, like we've mentioned, you know, nine times out of 10, the male is more interested in the AV, TVs and audio and all of those bits, gubbins. Um and we're all aware that, you know, an AV package might vary from 50,000 up to 500,000. How long's a piece of string? The same with interiors. So it, it's for us, I find that it, it does come, you know, land upon our shoulders to work with the client to try and extrude their budget. Sometimes we reference uh, previous projects. So we'll give them, we'll get up on screen, well, 
this master bedroom scheme cost X, this bathroom scheme, the reason why this one was £15,000 more is because we had real stone from here, bespoke vanity that included, I don't know, metal detailing or whatever it is, so that we can really gauge their reaction, but also let them know the reality of uh, of costs. Um, but it, it can be really, really challenging because we're not just here to spend clients' money because if we if they invest in us to design a scheme, it's pointless us specking products that can't ever be procured or implemented because it's a waste of our time and it's a waste of the clients. Um, yeah. So I think it, I think you know it, there's a lot of responsibility on our shoulders mm-hmm. actually. Um, no, I, I agree. And I think it's a really good point that you said, you know, we're not actually here to spend clients' money just to max it out. We are here to maximise their their investment yeah. against against that spend. So knowing where to spend and knowing where to save, because we know that, you know, I use the example with fabric for curtains, and I know it's a very soft example, yeah. but, you know, Literally. you can spend 200, <laughs> 500 pounds a metre on a, on a fabric, or you can spend... 40. Exactly. And if you need 20 meters, that's going to have a big impact on your bottom line. And I can show clients two fabrics and if they don't know which one's the most expensive, they'll choose the one they like. But sometimes if they know the price, they want the more expensive one. It's just some kind of weird yeah. psychological <laughs> thing. Exactly. <laughs> so, And you yeah. know what? That is the perfect example because and it goes across all of our materials, all of our suppliers that, you know, with textiles, depending on, you know, are we specifying real silk? Where is it made? What fabrics? Is it embroidered? Is it hand embroidered? Or that, you know, it's kind of like, it's the same as the fashion industry. And it is that education of our fees are what our fees are. Um, yes. yes, if your budget's too low, we'll you know, say that there's no way you can get this look with this budget and it's kind of our job to help guide you through that. But we're not, you know, we're not just here to spend your money. We need to work with what your budget is for your projects and what's important to you. So I think that's really important because we don't want to waste anyone's time. And we want to be creative and we want to spec nice products, but sometimes we do have to be really careful. And I think every project, you, you've got a responsibility, haven't you, to recognise if something is a bit out there. Yeah. So you're a northern studio and I'm, I'm, I'm interviewing lots of people from different parts of the country and it's, it's quite interesting because lots of the northern uh, designers that I'm speaking to have a community, a bit more of a community amongst their peers than, than would appear to be the case perhaps in the south, even though geographically northern designers are going to be spread further apart. Mm-hmm probably, than Chelsea designer who is maybe on the same road as several others. Yeah. Talk to me about what your experiences have been about working in the north, really, and, and how that has been perceived. Yeah, I mean, you know what? I lived in London for 12 years or however long. So, you know, the first, like, my adult, half my adult life has been spent in London. So, it, you know, I know it like the back of my hand. That's where I studied and cut my teeth on the club culture. And um, <laughs> so, you know, that's all fine. But there, there is, there seems to be still some kind of 
snobbery about the UK and how divided London is from the rest of the UK. I mean, Rachel, you'll be familiar that you, your studio and ours, we work all over. And and I think um, there's there's no difference. All of our suppliers are the same. We use amazing joiners, whether they're bit whether they're based. Um, we've got some in Macclesfield. We've got some on the Wirral. We've got some down south. We've got some in London, Surrey. So everyone's positioned in different places, and depending on the project, what comes in, location, budgets, we'll go to the right kind of suppliers. Similarly, being with um, furniture suppliers. Um, so location wise there's no difference because we work all over um with regards to I do think there's still some kind of snobbery about where your designer is based and I think some international clients you know just like the fact that they can say they've got a London-based designer um we work out of an office from London when we're down there um, because we've partnered with some architects, which is perfect. Um, so we have that presence there, but there's no difference. It, take, it takes me the same amount of time to get on a train in Birmingham to go to a site meeting in London. Well, it's like an hour and 15 minutes. Whereas a lot of my uh, contacts in London that live in Surrey, Essex, da, 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 da. and even when I lived in London, it would take me an hour to get from SC16 between 45 minutes and an hour, SC16 to Chelsea to get to work. So the commute is the same or really similar. So so I do think we need to push that. And, and I do think we've got our community. I think we're a little bit more open outside, yes. well, north of Watford, should I say, <laughs> <laughs> which is considered the north if you live in London. It is. <laughs> That's where they issue you with a flat cap and a whippet yeah. at that point. <laughs> And a Scouse accent. <laughs> oh, that's only if you're going left. <laughs> oh, dear. And, you know, some of those attitudes, they prevail, but... Um, yeah, it's boring. But I do think it is. But I do think it is quite funny that I can get to a meeting in London quicker than somebody that lives in London. And that's just because I know. we're unfortunate like exactly. you. We've got, the, we've got great train lines yeah. and they go a little bit faster than I know. in London. Result. Yeah, so, no, that is know. good. Um, and I, you know what? It, it, it's that age-old thing that even, even when I used to get the train home to see family, as soon as I jumped off the train, the reality is every, you know, you go, you go into Wilkinson's to get your toiletries to go back to London because they're so much cheaper. <laughs> and everyone in Wilco's used to be amazing. And they're like, um, hi, Bab, what do you want? Are you okay? And I'm like, you know, this lady in Wilco's is asking me if I'm okay. I'm like, actually, I'm not okay. Because <laughs> I mean, they're so nice. And I think yeah. that there is that kind of, you know, that, that warm feeling, actually, yeah. in certain yeah. towns and what have you. Yeah. Outside of the big smoke. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Outside of the big cities. I think it's across the world, isn't it? You know, that thing. So taking us to the last big three then, um, what would you have told your younger self? You just, you know, um, 80, 20, would what would you say? say um, to try and not be so much of a perfectionist um, because I do, in the past, and I'm a lot better with that, as I mentioned earlier, um, because you have to be. If you've got kids, you just need to get on with it. But sometimes it can really stop you moving forward and you get kind of paralysed that you can't, 
get things done because it has to be perfect. So I'd just say try and relax a little bit um, and also to learn about business practices a lot earlier on because that's so important and it was definitely overlooked in my education. So I kind of just had to learn on the job. Yeah. No, I think that's good advice, certainly the learn business practices part. And what has been your greatest lesson? Probably relating back, get a bit of confidence, um, which kind of about, um, I think I could have felt a lot more comfortable in business if I'd had the skills which would have then led on to being confident. So it's kind of a bit of a round robin there. and. I think another big lesson would be to ensure that you surround yourself with the right team and the right people, Um, coming back to surround yourself with positive people and to recognise if if there is somebody that isn't the right fit, to have the confidence to have those uncomfortable conversations um, a lot earlier on um, and not yeah, not to harp on about it to <laughs> your family and whatever and be in that situation that you're taking those awkward conversations home and you're not dealing with it at work. Um, so I think to really be aware about who who you're surrounding yourself with at work. Burdening your family with things that are bothering you. Yeah, yeah. That's, um, that's easier said than done, but it's a big one, isn't it? What's next? Where is next for Cream of Black? What are your next ambitions? Um, I think to continue to grow the brand, um, I think being a woman in business can be challenging because running like the home, young children, um, my kids are now four and seven. So I feel like when you do have a young baby, sometimes things can slow down a little bit, which is natural because you're juggling so many plates. Um, and then we had like the COVID thing. So now as a business and personally, I'm feeling completely energised. Um, so it's just continuing to build the brand and to build more relationships with, whether it be architects, contractors, other designers, um, because I think that it makes you feel settled within the industry. If you reach out to people, people actually want to talk to you. And I think it's, again, it's kind of that strength in having an industry where we can pass business around if there's something that we're too busy or we need a bit of extra external support, you know, being confident to us for that. Um, and then moving forward, we'd love to have some international projects um, again. So whether it's a beach house or a chalet, something like that to, yeah, change up the styles a little bit um, and have a bit of fun with it. So, yeah, so yeah, yeah. we're excited. Yeah. Be looking forward to this year. Yeah, it's going to be a good year. It's um, I can feel that the energy of things have changed. Last year was really hard for the economy and interest rates and cost of living crisis and wars and all these things were having a big impact. And I do feel that, well, despite the fact that conflict is still obviously getting out of hand, the rest of the rest of everything does feel like it's turning a corner. Fingers crossed. It's going to be a good year. Hannah, I'm so grateful that you've spoken to me because everything you're saying, I'm like, yes, me too. Yes. <laughs> and it's just so nice, I think, for people to know that all of these things that happen, you do learn from, you evolve, you become better. But actually, it didn't happen to you alone. It's happening to others. And sharing those stories and 
those experiences is it's just reassuring for everybody that to know that we are a community and we can talk to each other and we can learn from each other definitely yeah and i really appreciate you asking me to come on here my first podcast um so yeah much appreciated and um yeah it's it's been really good to chat and to listen to your other episodes i haven't listened to them all yet but i will but it, it's great because i I've literally been screaming, <laughs> yes, me too. <laughs> and it, 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 does, it, it helps. Yeah. So, yeah, thank yeah. you. It does, it does. No, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. How many of us can relate to that example that sometimes perfection can be the enemy of progress and you have to learn to get better at being less of a perfectionist? can stand in your way understanding when you have done enough and it's time to you know move on to the next part of a project it's critical it's part of your bottom line and Hannah acknowledges like most of us that learning the business side of the industry is something that she's had to cut her teeth on through trial and error as she's gone along and also acknowledging the value of kinship and friendship and being able to pick up the phone and say hey We've had this happen, do you know anything about it? And that in itself is immeasurably valuable and that's part of why we're here having this conversation. Sharing, being a community and rising tides lift all boats. Thank you for joining me. I have loved having you here with me on the If These Walls Could Talk podcast. If you are a designer and would like to hear more conversations from other design professionals, from the kind of people who at one time or another have been right where you are, then I do hope you will follow the show and listen again in two weeks' time. I'll be right here, wherever you would usually find your podcasts. Just search for If These Walls Could Talk by The Business of Interiors. If you would like to be a guest on the podcast, talk about sponsoring the show or work with me, please reach me at hello at thebusinessofinteriors.co.uk. Finally, it means a lot to the success of this show if you could follow, leave a review and share this program amongst your design community. This show is sponsored by Rachel Usher Interior Design. Thank you so much for joining me.